In my convocation address, I shared with you the fact that I'm preoccupied these days with the nature of the church and the nature of Christian discipleship. Maybe my preoccupation with the nature of the church is a result of the struggles that are going on in my own denomination, the United Methodist Church, and in fact, the struggles that are going on in all the mainline churches. Schism is a threat. I struggle with questions like this. What uh, constitutes heresy? Uh, when does a person such as this person uh, have a right to separate himself or herself from the church of which he or she has been a part of for so long? Uh, has the church become apostate? Uh, what is God doing with the church? How might the church be renewed? Will God renew a church that has lost its apostolic vision uh, and has become preoccupied with uh, the maintenance of an institution? Now, I know you're salivating. I'm not going to answer those questions. <laughs> those questions are not for my consideration in my preaching. They're considerations in my personal reflection, in my prayer life, in my effort to discern God's place for me. And somewhere along the line, maybe would have a place in my preaching. But it's confessional about why I'm preoccupied with the nature of the church. But not only the nature of the church, the, the nature of Christian discipleship. Because I've come to believe that you, you, really, you really cannot grasp the essence of Christian discipleship apart from some understanding of the nature of the church. They are inseparable. The wonderful man, Eugene Peterson, who gave us the paraphrase of the New Testament and now the Old Testament in his The Message, a long time ago wrote a book on discipleship. In fact, this is the first book that really attracted me to Eugene Peterson. It was a book on discipleship in an instant uh, culture. And he took a phrase from Nietzsche as the title of that book, along obedience in the same direction. Uh, and in that book, he, he said that going against the stream of the world's ways, there are two biblical designations for people of faith that are extremely useful, disciple and pilgrim. Disciple says that we are people who spend our lives apprenticed to our master, Jesus Christ. We are in a growing, learning relationship always. A disciple is a learner, uh, but not in the academic setting. This doesn't excuse what you're doing here now. Not in an academic setting of a classroom, but rather the work site of a craftsman. We don't acquire information about God but skills in the faith. Think about it as you think of yourself as 
a disciple, an apprentice to Jesus, learning to think like, to be like, to relate like, to act like Jesus. The other word, pilgrim, tells us that we are a people on the move. We're going someplace. We're going to God, and our path for getting to God is Jesus Christ. We realize that this world is not home, and we set out for the Father's house. So I'm preoccupied with the nature of the church and the nature of Christian discipleship. This passage that we read for our scripture lesson this morning uh, is a marvelous help for me as I reflect on both the nature of the church and the nature of Christian discipleship. Because in this passage, Peter suggests not only our individual identity, he suggests our corporate identity, indicating that those two things go together. It uh, helps to get the context of Scripture in mind when we're trying to appropriate its meaning. I hope our preaching professors are warning you students that a text without a context can be a pretext. A, a, a pretext for a preacher to buttress his own ideas with some biblical support. So register the context of, of this passage. Peter was writing some Christians who were facing scorn and persecution. They're Christians in dispersion. They're, they're exiles. And this was a circular letter to be passed from congregation to congregation. And its purpose was to fortify these Christians and enable them to stand firm in the midst of the persecution that they were suffering, enabling them to remain steadfast in their faith and in their commitment. Listen to Peter again. Once you were no people, but now you're God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These Christians knew who they were. They had once been a no people, mere units in a medley of nations that could all have been classified as heathen. Among them were some small pockets of Jews. They understood also. Once they had been no people, proudly and falsely self-sufficient, but now they had become the recipients of God's mercy. This entire passage is rooted in the Old Testament concept of the covenant. Plug for the Old Testament professor now. You can't understand the Old Testament, nor can you understand Scripture, really, unless you understand the concept of the covenant. The people of God were those people with whom God had made a covenant. And this particular verse of Peter can be seen as a fulfillment of Hosea's rendering of God's promise in Hosea 2.23. I will have mercy upon those who had not received mercy. And I will say to those who were not my people, Thou art my people, and they will say, Thou art my God. So Peter picked up on that, quoting Hosea almost verbatim. Once you were no people, but now you're God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And since Peter is so rooted in the Old Testament, he begins to apply title after title after title on this no people 
who have been loved into redemptive being by God himself. He calls them a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I believe that this passage answers three questions that have to do with the nature of the church and the nature of Christian discipleship. Those questions are, who are we? What is our function and where is our power? Let's consider these questions in relation to the text. First, who are we? Now, we need to get that straight. We need to get that straight because I believe, I believe that that's one of the biggest problems of the church today. We are experiencing an identity crisis. We simply don't know who we are. We have strayed from our roots. We're confused in our mission. Uh, we are fearful about the future. We don't have that kind of boldness, that kind of boldness which is always characteristic of a people who are seeking to be faithful to God's call upon their life. Who are we? Peter is rather clear about it. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. The phrase translated God's own people means a people of God's possession. And if you remember the King James Version, uh, it translates that a peculiar people. I heard a story recently about a, a, a woman who had forgotten to put out uh, the garbage, and she heard the sound of the garbage truck early in the morning. She, so she threw on her, her bathrobe, and her hair was still in those prickly plastic kind of curlers. Her face had that chalky white cream on it. She was, she was really a sight. So she ran out with the garbage shouting, am I too late for the garbage? The fellow said, no, hop right in. That's not, uh, that's not the peculiar people I'm talking about. The word, the word peculiar comes from the Latin meaning a slave is private property. So as Christians, our relationship to God is unique. As a church, as church, we are God's people, God's possession. We remember how God said to Israel, this people have I formed for myself. They will show forth my praise. I, I hope I'll never forget my first visit to Estonia. And week after next, isn't it, Chuck, that we're going to have some visitors from Estonia? Uh, this was in the early 80s, uh, long before the collapse of the Soviet regime, when the church was still tremendously oppressed. I remember this experience two or three weeks ago when I was in China, because the church in China is experiencing today very much what the church in Estonia was experiencing back then. On that first visit to Estonia, I met a man named Alexander Coombe. Brother Coombe was really the patriarch of the Methodist church there. 
Estonia was the only republic in the Soviet Union where the Methodist Church survived all during the communist oppression. And when I was in Estonia, the capital city of Tallinn, more people attended that congregation on Sunday morning than any other church in Europe at that time. The church was packed with people, standing in the aisles, standing everywhere. Uh, the church that you see above you is not that particular church. That's the Lutheran church in Tallinn. The, the Methodist church is far more humble than that. Uh, during the time, I hope it's far more, I hope it's far more humble. Uh, during the time of Stalin, when the church was savagely oppressed and persecuted, governmental leaders came to Brother Coombe, who was the head of the church, and said that the Methodist church uh, would either be dissolved or they would have to unite with another denomination. But Brother Coombe refused to give in to that. And the officers of the government told him that it would be easier for him to give in and merge the church with another denomination rather than the government forcing the church to close. But Brother Coombe stood firm. He knew who he was. And he and the identity of the church was clear. The governmental officials pressed it. What difference is it going to make? Whether you take the initiative and the easy way without raising a lot of question, or we force you to do it. Whatever the case, the church is going to be banished. Brother Coombe answered in a challenging picture of response. He said, it makes all the difference in the world. If you give me a rope and tell me to hang myself, and I do so, I am responsible. But if you hang me, you are responsible. He was sentenced to Siberian exile for 25 years, miraculously released after five years. During that five years, the church grew more than it had ever grown before. When I was there and visited with Brother Coombe, I could just as well have been visiting with St. Paul and when I preached in that church, I could just as well have been preaching in one of these churches that Peter sent this circular letter to. The devotion and commitment were so obvious. Under constant oppression and persecution, these humble Christians remained faithful and continued to seek creative ways of expressing their faith during those years of persecution. I hope I will never forget that crowded church that Sunday morning, people standing for two hours. I hope that I'll carry in my mind forever the picture of those people pressing into the altar with trembling hands open to receive the bread and the wine and my trembling hand as I delivered it to them. And I hope, I hope I will never forget that that really is what we need to know in the church in America. They knew who they were. Would God, would God that that understanding and identity as Christians would pervade the church in America? Would God that we had that kind of clarity of identity? Who are we? The church. We're a chosen people chosen by God, 
called into redemptive being by God himself. Think about it. Think about it and tremble. God's own people. If that's who we are, then what is our function? Peter is so excited in answering that question that he almost stumbles over himself as he puts those words on paper. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our identity and function all in one sentence. Our identity, God's own people. Our function, to declare the wonderful deeds of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're witnesses. We're ministers. We're missionaries, all of us Christians. Why, why do we need to debate the function of the church? It's clear, underscored in almost every chapter of the New Testament, not only in our text, but in words like those powerful words of Jesus. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Inasmuch as you did it unto the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it unto me. Our proclamation of the wonderful deeds of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light is by word. It's by word. Uh, you know how much my praying for you means to me and how much those slips of paper that you send me when I write you and tell you that I'm going to be praying for you a particular week. Last week I prayed for David in his expressions of praise and thanksgiving because we have that, we ask you for that, your praise and thanksgiving as well as your needs about which I might pray. In his praise and thanksgiving, David, one of our uh, student pastors is obviously proclaiming the wonderful deeds of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because one of the things he said was that he was rejoicing over the six people who were getting ready to be baptized in his church. And the ten people that had professed their faith and had been baptized in past weeks. This is a tiny little congregation in a diminishing populated community. And there are churches across America, numerous churches across America, that don't register one profession of faith or baptism in a year, two years. I thank God for David proclaiming the word, the word of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But not only is that proclamation in word, it's also in deed and in sign. A Sanford University psychologist, Dr. Fessinger, has a theory that he calls uh, cognitive dissonance. That may sound a little strange, but it's very simple. It refers to our awareness of the big gap between my ideals and my actions. What I believe and what I do. My goals and my deeds. Our big problem is that we're victims within the church 
of cognitive dissonance. We feel, but we don't act. We have knowledge. We know. But our hearts are not burning with a passionate faith that won't let us sit still. Two of my favorite columnists have died, and I miss them. Irma Bombeck and Louis Grizzard. Uh, you remember them both. Louis Grizzard was a rather sophisticated writer who pretended to be a redneck. Uh, some of us are rednecks who pretend to be sophisticated. He was, uh, he was brash, irreverent, and oftentimes obscene. I often felt that what he wrote was really laughter on the outside to express pain on the inside. Laughter about his two failed marriages, that sort of thing, when he was crying inside. Uh, though he was crusty and, and rough, now and then he, he would write on some of the tough issues of life and he would communicate a depth of understanding and a winsome tenderness that drove the point home. In one of his columns, he wrote about the church, and this was the church. Listen to him. On a cold day last week, I stood outside the church in my hometown of Moreland, Georgia, a hometown that is so dear to my childhood, and I tried to remember how long it had been since I was inside that church. Ten years? At least that long. But if there weren't still roots there, would I come back so often in my mind? Church was about all we had then. Sunday school was at 10 o'clock. But preaching was only twice a month since we shared sermons and preacher with another flock down the road. What did they call Sunday night? MYF? Methodist Youth Fellowship? We had a couple of rowdy brothers in town who broke into a store they were juvenile offenders. Their punishment was to attend the Methodist Youth Fellowship for six months. <laughs> I, I hope that doesn't represent that your youth fellowship is punishment. I Listen to him as he goes on. First night they were there, they beat up on two boys and threw a Cokesbury hymnal at the lady who met with us and always brought cookies. She ducked in time and then looked them squarely in their devilish eyes. So, as the angel she was, she said, I don't approve of what you boys did tonight, and neither does Jesus. But if he can forgive you, I guess I can too and she handed them the whole plate of cookies. And last I heard, both are good daddies with steady jobs and rarely miss Sunday in church. That was the first miracle I ever saw. We have seen those miracles, haven't we? A husband forsakes his wife after the children are grown and selfishly and sinfully abandons her for some young thing, breaks her heart, crushes her spirit, and leaves her lifeless. But now by the power of the living Christ, she finds life, a miracle, 
in the church. Men and women controlled by their addictions, lost in a wasteland of despair and endless repetition of loss and failure, find a higher power in Jesus Christ and live free and with purpose. Persons who sought meaning in their jobs and professions, in accumulating money and, and being secure, find themselves at the top. But now there's no encore. Nothing else different to do. Nowhere else to go. And their lives still lack meaning. Then Jesus comes to them. They make a commitment to him. And through him to the poor and the oppressed. They build a habitat for humanity house because of God in some poor area of the community. They go with a mission team to El Salvador and uh, meaning, unlike anything they've ever known, come to them. They discover a, a lifestyle of serving, which gives them a whole new dimension of life. And we could go on and on. The witness is multiplied in this student body over and over again. I know many of your stories. What Christ has done and continues to do in your lives. So we proclaim in word, deed, and sign, the wonderful deeds of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Then there's the third question. Where is our power? We do get stuck, don't we? We, we feel inadequate. Our identity is not strong. We're not worthy, so we think. Not worthy to be witnesses, to be ministers, to be missionaries, to share the wonderful deeds of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We, we are reticent because we're without power. I heard of a fellow who owned a five-story office building, and he was called about 10 o'clock one morning with the news that the elevator was stuck between the third and the fourth floor. He went uh, immediately to make some calls to try to find the elevator mechanic and that sort of thing to get the job done. He ran up the steps to the, to the second floor and began to call into the elevator shaft to the trapped passengers there. Don't worry about it. Uh, we'll have you out of there in no time. Uh, I've already called the elevator mechanic, and a cracking voice inside said, I am the elevator mechanic. <laughs> so where, where, is, uh, where is our power? Peter answers that question. In fact, in our scripture lesson, he answers that question first. He says, like newborn babes, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, for you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Come to Christ, the living stone, and be yourselves built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. There's the source of our power, the living stone, who builds us into a spiritual house, who indwells us, then order that we might be his presence in the world. Don't have time to talk about that but I want to illustrate it. When I was pastor in uh, Christ Church in Memphis, I preached a series of sermons on the devil. And that series grew into a book which was published under the title, The Devil at Noonday. After one of those sermons, I, I received a letter from a woman in the congregation. She began her letter in this fashion. I just wanted to affirm your boldness to preach on the devil and to thank you for making public a subject that many of us are too scared to talk about 
are too unsure to accept. The truth of the reality of the devil and the evil he vomits over the world. She went on to describe the fear that stalked her early years because of, her, of the threats of her parents that if she didn't behave, the devil would get her. Uh, she told about being sexually abused by her father when she was a child. And, and she shared the story that when she was seven years old, she stumbled into a cult ritual in her aunt's garage where older children were mutilating a cat and chanting as they formed a circle. Listen to her description of that experience. They bound me and put me in the center, tormenting and violating and ridiculing as older children do to younger ones. I was warned that if I told the same thing as the cat was receiving would happen to me and the devil would get me for telling. She talked about her recovery from addiction and how the demon of deception and denial worked overtime in her life to force her into relapse. She closed her letter with this word. It's good to be able to finally write this and tell another human being. But this letter would not be complete without giving God the glory for the transformation in my healing journey. For this happened only by the healing power of Jesus Christ. Just as Paul said, it is not I that live, but Christ lives in me. He has all authority here, and he has already defeated the enemy. Praise God. Praise God. Say it. Praise God. There's the power. There's the power. Do you believe it? Greater, greater is he that is within you than he that is within the world. Well, there you have it. Who are we? God's own people. What is our function? To proclaim by word, deed, and sign the wonderful deeds of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And where is our power? In Jesus Christ, the living stone who builds us up to be his spiritual priesthood. Do you get it? Do you get it? Has it gotten you? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity of sharing your word, witnessing to your wonderful deeds. You called each one of us out of darkness into your marvelous light, and we celebrate that. So may we go to live as those who know who we are, know the purpose and the function for which we're called, and know the source of our power. And may we know, and may we act as though we know, that all power in heaven and earth is given to your Son, Jesus Christ. And He, through the Holy Spirit, gives that power to us. In Jesus' name, amen. And you're dismissed.